Hey gang, it's John. Thank you for listening to another episode of Deep Dive. This time, this is a big one, isn't it? We welcome back Iva Davies of Ice House to talk about that incredible landmark breakthrough album of theirs from the late 80s, Man of Colors. That's the one with Crazy and Electric Blue and that really broke them in the States. They were already obviously a big deal in uh, in Australia and in other parts of the world, but it's what really made them huge here. And there wasn't really a follow-up for a long time, which if you listen to Iva's first interview from a few years ago with us, he explains why in there. Anyway, I've heard from many people over the years how great it would be to have him back to do a deep dive on this particular album, and he agreed to do it. So I hope you enjoy it. Check it out. Okay. Now, I think we talked about this before, but I don't remember exactly what the answer was. Man of Colors comes out September 21st, 1987, and it sounds or feels to me like the like an album meant to break an Australian band everywhere else. And and I mean that as a compliment. It feels bigger, more powerful, more professional, uh, more commercial, I guess is the right word. And I wonder if that was, if you intended when you started creating Man of Colors, like this is, I want this to be our breakthrough, or if a label heard it and said, I think we can work with this in the States, or what? Or is it just coincidence? It's it's pretty much just coincidence. Let me give you that background story that I, that I alluded to. So can you imagine uh, I came from a a really serious professional classical uh, background. I was the principal oboist of the ABC National Training Orchestra in Australia here. So that was and after, you know, 10 years of training. When I got to the situation where, you know, we got to where I really had wanted to be ever since I heard, you know, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd or whatever, it's a recording studio. We're recording that first album as a band called Flowers. Mm-hmm. And it's straight away, first of all, it was in a world that I didn't understand, of technology I didn't understand too well. Uh, I knew a little bit about it. But also working with a co-producer who was directly at odds with what I was hearing. He had his picture that he wanted. I had mine. I went from that to Primitive Man. And once again, Keith Force is a lovely guy, but, you know, we clashed over a lot of stuff. And I was pretty strong-minded about it. Now, that's why when we got the sidewalk, which turned out to be a commercial disaster, I produced it myself. Uh, and I love that, that album, by the way. That's one of my, my favourite Ice House albums, by the way. Weird, right? It, but it is. It, it, is, it is weird. But, uh, you know, it was, it was the pendulum going full swing the other way, which is I'm going I'm to produce this myself. And then that experience of it really kind of not succeeding that well in Australia, I kind of went, okay. So that was... That was me being totally in charge. I don't think that necessarily was a good idea. Um, I need somebody else. But so we got to the fourth album and I came up with a fairly novel approach. I said, okay, I'm going to pick two producers and if one of them doesn't work, we'll finish the whole thing off with the other one. One of them has got to work, surely. And so I sent all my demos out to two people, Rhett Davies, who had a long history with Brian Eno and early Roxy Music and uh, bleeding right up to the, I think the Avalon album was the last one he did with them. And a fellow called David Lord, who 
I noted his work with Peter Gabriel and Peter Gabriel's fourth album. Peter Gabriel, like me, was deeply involved with a piece of te technology called the Fairlight, which is a whole other story. But that was my main kind of writing uh, tool. And luckily, these two guys picked a different set of songs. Uh, I, I don't know what I would have done if they'd gone, no, we both want to do, you know, no promises or we both want to do whatever. <laughs> so started in London with Rhett Davies and, and it was a lovely experience and he's a consummate engineer and, and, uh, and recorded his set of songs. It was pretty much like doing a really highly technically brilliant version of my demos that were kind of no new ideas. It was, you know, the demos were the songs. Rick did a great job of getting the best possible versions of those great vocal takes and all this sort of stuff. Then we moved to Bath and started working with David Lord on his set of songs. <coughs> it was a strange relationship, but David Lord is a, a graduate of the Royal Academy of Music in London and a really uh, technically brilliant pianist, and uh, I think organ was his uh, first instrument, also a brilliant engineer. Uh, and we got through the process with that, and David Lord started adding little keyboard things he referred to as his tinkles. This is mm. the name. I'm just going to do some of my tinkles on this on this track. And I was deeply suspicious of producers, co-producers, through all of my experiences over those you know, uh, albums leading up to that point. But he started putting things on the songs that kind of brought a shine to them that I hadn't expected. And so in the end, I went back to Rhett Davies and I said, look, do you mind if David um, plays a few tinkles on your recordings, like the ones that you did? And Rhett's an incredibly lovely guy. And he went, no, knock yourself out. Uh, do you mind if David mixes these? No, 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 let him go for it. So in the end, I came back to Australia and David Lord sat in his studio in Bath, adding little keyboard bits, little percussion bits, inviting in a violinist, and just doing these extra kind of uh, little sprinkles on top of uh, what we'd already finished, mm. and then sending me mixes. And I went, wow, this is great. This is a, definitely a, 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 you know, the, the sum of the parts is, is, you know, the results greater than the sum of the parts. And... So by the time we got to next album, which is Man of Colours, I rang without a moment's hesitation David Lord and said, we're recording this in Australia, but I want you to produce it. And David liked the songs that I'd written. I'd sent him uh, my demos. And he came out to Australia. And because I'd had that kind of testing experience with him for Measure for Measure, uh -huh. When David started coming up with his more adventurous and slightly mad ideas for uh, the songs on Man of Colours, <laughs> I went, yep, I, I trust you enough now. Let's give it a go. And some of these were kind of insanely um, insanely mad ideas. So I'd written yeah. a, nice little, a nice little song called Girl in the Moon, which was <laughs> a lovely danceable kind of strangely Beatle-esque uh, XTC-ish sort of thing, which you could quite happily dance to because it was in the time signature of 4-4. And David Lord came along to my studio and said, um, well, it's great. It's a great song. Um, I want to try a little experiment. Yes, what would you like to do, David? I'd just like to do, we'll run a little mix of it, your demo, on a quarter-inch tape, 
And then I'm just going to create a few three, four bars. Now, I guess you probably realize what that's going to do to somebody dancing. It's like chopping off one of their legs, you know. Uh, and, and I thought that was an incredibly mad idea, but there was nothing to be lost, you know. Okay, that one didn't work. We'll go back to where we were. Uh, so he, he literally got the razor blade out and started uh, doing edits and taking out uh, a beat every now and again in, in one of the bars. And the net result was this extraordinarily eccentric but brilliantly entertaining um, kind of upgrade of the song. Uh, and I think it's a telling thing that David Lord, there was a, the, let's go back to Measure for Measure, the demos for Measure for Measure. There was a really mad song that uh, Bob and I had written, which was the result of large amounts of alcohol and a completely improvisational uh, approach to writing a song. And in fact, I, I, I improvised the entire vocal line and set of lyrics uh, in one take. Uh, and it turned into a mad song uh, called Lucky Me. Which I thought neither Rhett Davies or David Lord would choose uh, and wouldn't end up on the album. And David Lord jumped on it and went, I want to do that song. And he made an even madder version of it. Mm. And that's on, on, uh, so that'll give you some idea of that makes sense. the adventurous nature of what, uh, David Lord was, was up to. Sense. And I think, yeah, I think so. Him having get, worked with Peter Gabriel. And XTC and uh, Tears for Fears, I think a little bit. Icicle Works yep. are these. I'm imagining those are all bands that you're into, and you want a piece of that. Who who's the guy that's making Peter Gabriel and, and Tears for Fears and whatever sound so good? I want to talk to that guy. Is that what's feeding some of your interest? Uh, yes, precisely, and I think. Um, uh, I mean, we, we in the very early days when we were still called Flowers, we actually toured with XTC. They came to Australia. Oh, interesting. And so we, we had a kind of uh, a relationship with them. And, in fact, our bass player at the time modelled his new hairstyle on, on Colin Moulding, the bass player from... <laughs> from yeah. And uh, <laughs> so there's weird, weird kind of uh, threads that tie us all together. But I think, yeah, it was mainly with me, it was it was probably Peter Gabriel's fourth album uh, okay. and the use of the Fairlight because the Fairlight, um, I was a very early pioneer of the Fairlight and um, and as it, it, it turned out it not only was it an Australian invention but when our management company moved offices while, uh, while I was away on tour, they told me to come in when I got back from the tour to have a meeting and I had this new address and it led me to a two-storey little office building uh, right in the centre of uh, Sydney and they were upstairs but I didn't get past the front door because there was a sign plate on the front door that said uh, Dirty Pool Management upstairs, first floor, uh, ground floor, uh, CMI Fairlight and I went, what? <laughs> and they were actually building Fairlight's Ooh. underneath my manager's office. And so I, I I ended up having the sort of relationship with the engineers there. They were literally, they, wow. they gave me the guided, guided tour and yeah. you get past past the front desk and come out the back and meet the guys. And there were guys there with soldering irons and, and screwdrivers literally making fair lights. And it meant that I had a relationship with the engineers there that, um, that ended up, they invented for me brand new things that it I, I asked, can it, can you make it do this or can you make it do that? Mm. And so my 
My Fairlight, which I'm about to get back, actually, um, is, mm. is like this complete Frankenstein Fairlight, which has wow. all these added on bits that they ended up adding to their new models. And I can tell you that it's because of my relationship that the Fairlight turned into what it turned into. No way. Wow. Uh, it, and, and, you know, my name is not used as often as Stevie Wonders or... Right. <laughs> or, 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 or Kate Bush's or Peter uh -huh. Gabriel's, but uh, but you were but there no, on the ground I floor. Was, I that was is right. Wild. There. Um, I have to read something about David Lord. Unfortunately, you probably know this. In 2015, he was convicted of being a pimp. Basically, <laughs> did you know well, this? Well, it turned. Yes, I did, and it turned out. So, Man of Colors. Uh, you know, that's my second involvement with David Lord. But you know, Man of Colors is the one where I gave him um, absolute. Uh, carte blanche, you know, mm -hmm. it was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to run with it, any suggestion you make, even though up to this point I've been a real control freak because I didn't really get on with producers. But I've tested you with measure for measure, and now let's work together rather than, you know, me fighting you the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so Amanda Colors was a massive success, and as you quite rightly pointed out, it was the one that kind of broke, uh, broke us in America and... Uh, to a, a large degree, uh, with two top 20 hits. And so I then wrote the next set of songs for the next album. And David Lord was booked to uh, co produce Code Blue, the following album. Mm -hmm. And three weeks prior to me actually going into the studio, I got a phone call from David Lord's manager, lovely English guy called Mark Thompson. And he said, Ivor, I'm really. Uh, sorry to have to tell you uh, that David won't be able to come out to Australia to produce Code, Code, Code Blue, the follow-up to Man of Colours. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, that's devastating news. Why not? Uh, because he's currently in Bristol Prison. So it goes that far back. So it goes huh? that far back. Yeah. And, and now we, we let's, let's add another piece to the puzzle here. Um, Go back to 1983, and we had a big hit in Europe called Hey Little Girl. And amongst other people, um, uh, one of the people who heard that song was one David Bowie and that um, and Peter Gabriel. And we we got uh, put in a horrible situation. We got two incredible um, invitations, one from David Bowie and one from Peter Gabriel to go on tour with them. And unfortunately, both those tours were at the same time, and I had to make a choice. We ultimately ended up on going uh, on supporting uh, David Bowie on the biggest tour that he ever did, the, the Serious Moonlight tour, and uh, we were playing to 45,000, 50,000, 70,000 people every show that we did through Europe and uh, England and Scotland. And so, you know, I had conversations with David Bowie and I've got a photo of him and me in my kitchen. And anyway, let's go back to that three-week period before starting to record Code Blue, that devastating phone call, uh, David Lord can't. Uh, produce the album and so suddenly I had no producer and uh, I was absolutely sort of desperate I guess. Mm -hmm. It turned out uh, that one of the guys in my band um, uh, was good friends with the uh, with the maintenance crew uh, in a very famous studio called Studio 301 in Sydney where we recorded the first album we re were about to, we recorded uh, Man of Colours okay. <clears throat> and, and he was coming up to stay with me for the weekend and he said uh and I live about probably an hour from the city, right on the beach. There's a little tiny surf life-saving club. 
And it used to have bands in it, but then all my neighbours complained and so they had to stop <laughs> doing that. And it's literally 100 metres down the road from my house. Um, and Simon, my, my sack player, was coming up for the weekend and as soon as he got here, it was a Friday afternoon, uh, he said, there's a rumour going around the maintenance staff that David Bowie and his band is going to play down in your surf club down the road. And I went, what the hell? Pull the other leg, you know. It's like... <laughs> He said, "No, no, 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 no. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna walk down there and check it out." And so it was about five thirty in the afternoon, and there was a phone booth uh, down outside the, this place. And then, you know, ten minutes later, my phone rang in my house, and so, there's Simon saying, "David Bowie has just arrived." And I went, "What the hell?" And so, uh, so I walked down the road. And what would what had happened, as we explained this, was that David Bowie was in the process of recording the second Tin Machine album. I don't know whether you're familiar with that side, oh, side of project. Of course I am. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And he, and he was recording that in Sydney in Studio 301. And he had decided to tell the maintenance guys, listen, guys, get a couple of your friends, just keep it amongst yourselves. We're going to test some of these songs out. Reeves Gabriel's playing guitar, you know, uh, the Sales Brothers playing, yeah. you know, bass and drums and whatever yeah. and they turned up and i i went down to my surf club oh. uh on on this friday evening with about 50 70 people maybe max and oh. watched david bowie play a whole tin machine set oh and oh. then because and then because we toured together i went upstairs to the dressing room and hung out with him and had a drink and then i walked home to my house 100 uh -huh. meters back up the road so when I got the phone call about the about David Lord being in prison and no producer, in a kind of mad, desperate um, moment, I rang Studio 301 and I said, uh, listen, I know David Bowie's in there recording at the moment. And I left my name and they knew who I was and whatever. Could you get him to give me a call back? I need some advice on, you know, producers. And uh, I thought... Uh, there's no way he's going to give, you know, call me at home, you know, whatever. <laughs> and it was in the days when you had a little tiny tape machine in your in your phone, uh, your phone uh, uh, voicemail. Yeah, answering and machine. I got an answering machine. I got home and the, the light was flashing uh, one afternoon and I, and I pushed play and there was a message there. It says, hello, oh, it's Dave here, uh, just returning your call. Uh, give me a call in the studio. Um, and anyway, oh. we spoke and I, I think we spoke for at least an hour um, we went we, we, we went through every producer he'd ever worked with and uh, you know and there was a couple of names around at that time Tim Palmer I think was one of them Tim's who produced the I don't know if he did the second tin machine but I know he did the first he's been on the show too and uh, I so at the end of I mean it was fantastic and we were just talking you know serious musician to musician talk about you know I need a producer in three weeks. What, what the hell? Look, it didn't really uh, result in a, uh, a choice, but I, I did. I did end up with a co-producer, a fellow called Nick Lorne, who is another. He's been story on here too. I love Nick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So, um, wow. But but there, there's all the kind of weird. Oh my gosh! What I what a story! I had no idea. Yeah, someone needs to make a documentary about this David Lord guy. I mean, I'm thinking, boy, in 2015, you get busted for running a brothel. Turns out he was doing that like 25 years earlier. 
That is crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, he was doing something naughty. And it, oh, my it, it, gosh. Oh, my gosh. Um, okay. So the album reaches number 43 in the U.S. There are five hit singles in Australia. I only know of two here, and I don't know. I'll, I'll have you tell me about them when we go track by track, but obviously Crazy and Electric Blue. I don't know if there was a third single or if the singles that were being released in Australia were being released worldwide. I don't know. One thing I'm always curious about in a situation like this, do you decide ahead of time that the album's going to be called Man of Colors and then you write a song or does the song come first or is it a coincidence? What? How does that work? Okay, well, in this particular case, the the process of writing the song Man of Colors was an almost kind of magical experience. And I was working with our lead guitarist, Bob Krishma. Mm-hmm. You know, Bob Bob really didn't contribute m- much to the actual songs, but he, he has a very good sounding board and he was good company. And he was somebody who was prepared to sit there while I was kind of chipping away at, you know, uh, playing with this sample or that keyboard sound or whatever. So he's incredibly patient. And I got up one morning and I had this idea of uh, writing a set of lyrics, uh, you know, certainly the chorus, where the last word of the first line would become the first word of the next line Uh-oh. and so on. And so the best example of, I can give you of that I've kind of followed this plan uh, would be the second half of the chorus of Man of Colors where it goes uh, and he can see see through the years, years of a man a man of colors very good and it was just an experiment in sound really uh, the sound of words but that whole song and we're talking about a 24 track recording here like because i had a 24 track system in my house mm-hmm. was recorded and done within three hours and i was what? sitting in a in a chair going what just happened and bob oh. was still in bob was still making a cup of tea in the kitchen in his dressing gown you know and I've got I've got an entire song, <laughs> and um, to give you some idea, uh, I let by then David Lord had already mixed all of Measure Measure the previous album, and he'd mixed all of Man of Colors, but he was doing it remotely from his studio in Bath and just sending me the finished results, which I was just going, "Yep, great." Mm-hmm. He sent me a beautiful mix of Man of Colors, and I said to him, "You know what?" I, I don't want to destroy them. There's something magical about this song. Interesting. I'm, I want to mix this myself. And so I, all the mixes on Man of Colours are by David Lord, except for Man of Colours. Oh, um, wow. Oh. And he did, he did a beautiful mix, and yeah. I've got it somewhere. But I was just terrified that I'd kind of break the bubble, as it were. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that was the song that just stood out. Okay. And then, okay. And from what I can tell, you and Bob jointly create the album cover. Is it just a doodle? Is it? Is it when you when someone sits down to design it? Is it with the intention of this is going to be our album cover, or is it just a doodle that made sense as an album cover? So uh, once again, you know, Bob was Bob was there, but I did I did the work. So okay. the background the background comes from uh, my mother was. Um, quite a well-recognised artist, and she was oh. trained in Melbourne and uh, of her, but also a product of her age, whereby she had to make a choice as to whether she was going to become you know, a dutiful wife that stays at home and uh, brings up children or um, 
go off on some mad ta- tangent and become, you know, dedicate her life to, to painting. And she did both. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, she's not uh, as well recognised as she should be. She's won, she won just loads of kind of uh, exhibition um, prizes and so on and so forth. And we don't have any of her paintings left because they sold uh, oh, wow. you know, hundreds of them, you know. But at the time I was writing that album, she was starting to lose her eyesight. And the thought occurred to me, and this is where where the character in Man of Colours comes from. The character in Man of Colours is an old painter who was losing Yes, his I was going to ask eyesight. you about that when we got there. Okay. So the artist was kind of key to... Um, to the to the the artwork, obviously, and I was deeply frustrated because our record company had an art department, and we, as soon as I told them the name of the album was called Man of Colours, they started sending me these concoctions, uh, which were going to be possible covers. I remember one was a uh, you know a silhouette of a man's head with a great big kind of spectrum of uh, the rainbow light coming out of it, and like you know like the Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon. Okay. And whatever. Um, they were kind of mad ideas. And I said to Bob, uh, look, it's gotta it's gotta be almost childlike, this piece of artwork. It's got it's got to have a naivety and a simplicity and a bit of melancholy as well. Um, because the old man in the in the song is just painting and painting the same, the same young woman in my mind. That's the story. And nobody gets to see these paintings and something happened and I don't know who she was to him, but whatever, maybe his daughter and whatever, maybe a lost love. Um, so I, I walked up the street to the local news agency and I bought a little tin box which had five uh, crayons in it and, and a black uh, felt pen marker, you know, those things. Mm-hmm. And I went down and I sat down in front of Bob with a piece of A4 paper and I drew that artwork, really, like in, in one go. <laughs> and so that is that's a felt marker, and a, and a set of crayons out of which I I picked the three primary colours, which I'd learned from my mother, of course. Uh, yeah, you know, as I, as I was growing up, my mother had an art school. I've had my portrait painted five times, you know, various uh-huh. ages, and and there was all this stuff and you know i know what a vanishing point is in perspective and all that stuff um so i kind of by osmosis got all this stuff so there it was the man is holding flowers being the original name original of the band, the band makes sense in three primary colors and i i looked at bob and i went there that's it that's the kind of thing now what are we going to do and so we concocted because I didn't want to go to the record company and go, I drew something that's going to be the artwork. (laughs) (laughs) So we made up a a dummy invoice from a a fictional design company, and I think we made up the invoice for $1,500 or something or other, and we took it into Festival Art Department and said, there you go, Uh, we've had these guys do this artwork for us. Uh And... uh, (laughs) Anyway, we, we needless to say, we got busted pretty quickly. It was like, you know, <laughs> you, you actually. <laughs> yeah, but, I guess if they want to, they don't want to use the little drawing that the lead singer does. They want to pay for a professional to do this kind of thing, right? And right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. Oh, that makes sense. Well, it's a, it's beautiful, and it's still 
it's so striking still to this day. Okay, let's go track by track. The first song is crazy. That's the first song I remember hearing. It was the first song that I remember um, being associated with Ice House because I was pretty young and didn't remember anything before that. When I saw you in concert on that tour in Salt Lake City with Men Without Hats at the show and you performed Hey Little Girl, I realized I knew that song too. But when I went to your concert, I only knew those three songs. I knew Electric Blue, Crazy, and Hey Little Girl. And the thing that I remember most was that I saw the video before I heard the song on the radio. And in the video, at least the one we saw in America, you play like a morning DJ. And it and it, it feels as if you've been doing like an all-night shift and the sun is starting to come up. And that song, between the guitar riff and that soothing kind of synth that welcomes the song in sounds like sunrise to me. And so it's always been associated, every time I hear crazy, I still see you sitting at that desk and feeling like the sun is about to come out. I don't know if it's right. the video told me that or the song told me that or what, but it's this image that I cannot shake, never have been able to. That's interesting. It's, it's not, yeah, I can see exactly where you got that, but I, that, yeah, that's a very, very interesting, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're just always associated with me. Um, the song sounds like morning. It sounds like sunrise. Um, I think that the OOs part make the song. I think that there's, I may have mentioned this to you before, I feel like there's, you know, in the best music, there's little sprinkles of pixie dust, little things, and they aren't always even obvious, but they're the thing that elevate a song from being just a really good song to something special and memorable. And those OOs, in the background are one of those little sprinkles of pixie dust. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it, and I always struggled to come up with backing vocal parts. It was something okay. I was nev never very good at, and but acutely aware, uh, and that came to fruition with it, it, entirely with uh, uh, Electric Blue, uh, when John Oates came up with, before there was even a lead vocal line, he came up with those kind of iconic uh, backing vocals that lead into yeah. the chorus. Yeah. Um, and I, I, when he when he said to me, I, I, I hear backing vocals. I said, John, we don't even have a, a lead singer yet. What the hell, you know? <laughs> and and yet, you know, uh, th those are the things that people kind of have a couple of drinks yes. and come home from the karaoke bar and you know want to do that, you know, that bit. So those backing vocals can be incredibly important. Yeah, they elevate the song in this case now. The same actress, Paris Jefferson, I didn't know her name until I got ready to talk to you, is in both videos. And I'm wondering, was she your girlfriend at the time? Was she just an actress? Were you guys involved? What's the story? Uh, no, we weren't involved. And uh, what happened was we did uh, an Australian video for Crazy. It was shot in Sydney. For some reason, the American record company turned up their nose at it and said, no, 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 this won't do uh, for, for, the, for the United States market. We want to make another clip. And they sent out to Australia an American director, uh, John Jobson, I think is his name. Uh, and he, to be honest, I didn't really involve myself with the process of making promotional videos. And it's why you end up, you know, wearing ridiculous clothes and doing stupid things. Because uh, I just, you know, um, <laughs> I didn't, uh, I, I kind of, it wasn't my department. My department's the music department. You know, it's like, yeah, okay. So you've got to flog this song. You need a music video, knock yourself yeah. out. Um, uh, and so, you know, he came up with that whole concept, I guess. Um, 
and hired in Paris Jefferson, Australian actress. Okay. Uh, hired her again for the Electric Blue clip. Um, and I think he ended up taking her back to America with him. Oh, oh, wow. I, I think she ended up in a movie that he directed. I should look this uh, up. Yeah, it, I think it's you'll find an intriguing story. Okay. Uh, I can't, so, no, no, folks, it wasn't me. I, okay. <laughs> I, okay. I had a girlfriend at the time. <laughs> Just curious. Yeah, um, it's a beautiful song with a really longing. The word that the guitar solo, the word that I keep thinking about is longing. That's what it, uh, and that riff is so powerful. And it's one of those riffs that you're shocked didn't exist before you thought of it to write this song, but it's just, it's perfect. Now, Electric Blue, oh, and I should say Crazy reaches number 14 in the States. Electric Blue, the follow-up single, reaches number seven. And I didn't know this, I don't think anyway, until getting ready to talk to you, that if you hadn't recorded Electric Blue, John says he would have made that, he would have, that would have appeared on the next Hall & Oates record. And when I read that, and I read also somewhere that he had inspired the backup vocals, it hit me like a thunderbolt that those backup vocals are exactly what would have appeared in a Hall & Oates song at that time. Exactly that kind of thing. So I think he even referred to himself as, uh, I am a backing vocal specialist. You know, this is what I do. That's a good point, Uh, yes. And and if you now go back and you play your Hall & Oates best of uh, recording, listen to it through that lens. Uh, I'm just gonna listen for the backing vocal guy. And you'd be amazed at how many major hooks from Hall and Oates are directly attributable to John Oates' specialty, which is I am the backing vocal specialist, you know. Makes so um, much sense. Yeah. <laughs> they are my second favorite band of all time or artist right behind David Bowie. And um, he's been on here before and we talked about it. Remind us again, and I'm sure we talked, you probably get asked this all the time. Did John reach out to you because he was a fan of Ice House and just wanted to collaborate? How did you two get connected? So I was in an airport in Adelaide. This is really early on. This is the second album. Um, wow. And about to, about to play in the uh, theatre in, uh, uh, in Adelaide. And this short gentleman with a moustache walked over to me and said, Hi, I'm John Oates. We played in the Thevenin Theatre last night. You're playing there tonight. I've been listening to your album. He actually had it in his hand as, oh as a cassette. And, and loving your album great to meet you and walked off into the airport and I was just shell-shocked and um, that was amazing. And then four years later, uh, or more, five years later, uh, no contact from him, you know, whatever. Uh-huh. And and we were touring in America and I, we had a little break, we had a couple of weeks off in New York and I was staying at this hotel where I was there off enough to, uh, long enough that I got to, it was a little boutique hotel um, and the bartender got to know me and I was sitting at the bar and the phone went, behind him, he handed it over to me and voice on the end said, hi, Ivor, I found you. Uh, it's John Oates. And and he must have seen that we were touring in the United States and got onto the record company or whatever. Anyway, tracked me down and he said, and he was absolutely insistent, we've got to write songs together. And I'm, I'm not a collaborator. I don't work with people. I'm, just, I'm very much a hermit. And so I, I used every excuse I could think of. I said, well, we're in the middle of a tour. Don't worry, I'll, I'll wait till the end of the tour. Well, at the end of the tour, I've got to go back to Australia. Hey, I'll come to Australia. And so he, he just wouldn't take no for an answer. And that was how he, that was how he ended up in Sydney, you know, working great. in my, my little house, yeah. 
Was there, uh, were there, did any other song, but probably something we've never heard, but is there another song or portions of a song in the can somewhere that you two were working on? Or did you get so tunnel focused on this song and that was it? We, we pretty much got focused on this song and that was it. Okay. And there was, there was a little instant um, right about, you know, the end of the, the week uh, where I, uh, I had him for another hour and I ran up uh, the demo that was at that stage of a song called The Kingdom, which is on um, Man Love. That might be my favourite song in the album. Yeah. And I played it to him and I, and I said to him, you know, I'm going to play you this song. I just, I just written it for the album. I just wonder if you can help me out here. Is there any way to kind of improve this or, you know, any backing vocals or anything? <laughs> and he got to the end of it and he went, nope. <laughs> That's, he just, he said, I like it as it is. <laughs> and so, wow! That was so. That was it. That was it. That okay. was his con his contribution to the kingdom. Yeah. Does John stay at your house? Does he stay at a nearby hotel? Do you hang out together? Do you go out to dinner every night? Do you? We, go uh, we did. No, we did hang out. Uh, he certainly came with me. Uh, I I think uh, I don't know whether we already finished. I, I'd become a fanatical windsurfer and I oh. uh, was still windsurfing on flat water then. It was a particular lake uh, just north of uh, uh, about probably 35 minutes out of the centre of the city. And uh, he, he came kind of there for a picnic with me, you know, and my oh, family and stuff. But, uh, yeah, he was staying in King's Cross. I think he was staying right in, and that's right in the thick of it, in, right in town. I think he was enjoying a lot of seafood and, yeah, I think he had, you know, because we, 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 we work kind of daytime hours and then he'd knock off and get, you know, okay. go back to his hotel. And, do his own thing. Okay. Yeah, do his own thing. Okay. Um, now, of the two, even though they both were top 20 hits in the States, Electric Blue is the one you're, most, you're more likely to hear. I haven't heard crazy on the radio for a really long time, but Electric Blue still has a life over here anyway. Um, was there a third single off of this album, at least in the States? There were five in Australia, but in the States, do you remember? Uh, I think the third single was a song called My Obsession. Okay. It's, that's what I was reading too, but I wasn't sure if that was everywhere or just in Australia. Okay, we'll get to that one then when we get there. It's track three is Nothing Too Serious. Um, it's more of a straightforward rocker. And uh, there's some rollicking, some really thick bass lines. There's some rollicking piano kind of licks going on in the background. I love saxophone. I miss 80s saxophone so much. And there's a fantastic sax solo in there. I don't know who did it. I'm guessing your friend Simon that you mentioned earlier. Yes. Um, and I feel like these days, if you hear saxophone in a song, it's done ironically. Whereas in the 80s, it was done authentically. And I miss that sound. But And I would say, and I don't know if this bothers you or not, but um, it's the song... Nothing Too Serious is the song that reminds me most of a band like In Excess or maybe even Midnight Oil or those Australian bands that were making an impression over here for being sort of rocking and sort of dancing. Does that make sense? Yes. Now, if I tell you this is sort of where I started with, it, with that song, the inspiration behind that in more ways than one, uh, not only uh, musically, but also kind of philosophically, was, was Iggy, Iggy Pop, believe it or not. Really? What? Yep. And if you go back to a song called uh, "Real Wild Child," yeah, and you, of course, and you, and you extract the drum beat from that, and you put it on top of "Nothing Too Serious." There you have what? it. No, 
Oh, that is great trivia. Uh, blah, blah, blah is the album of Iggy's that I've probably listened to most in my life because that's the one that turned me on to him. That is fascinating. There's a little ska guitar riff during one portion of the song, but it's not through the whole thing. The end, there's that, uh, it just goes acapella for a second. There's you and nothing too serious. Is that all right? What goes into deciding to keep that in? It is a fun little touch. Uh, yeah, that was a, just a real kind of, a real thing that happened at the end of one take, you know, okay. and... Uh, yeah, I just thought oh, we'll keep that in for fun. Yeah, you know? I like it. I like it. Okay, we talked about Man of Colors already for a little bit. Um, I was curious who this person painting, it appears to be an old person who's losing their eyesight, as now I know that's your mom. In the song, it's a man. He seems to be looking out of a window, painting what he's looking at out there. There is at one point almost a Baba O'Reilly type intro synth thing going on that's dug in, that's hidden in the mix, but it's there. And I'm wondering, oh, and is now you mentioned, I think, earlier in our conversation that you played the oboe, and I think there's an oboe solo in this song. Is that right? So that instrument is uh, is an instrument called a cor anglais, or which is French, oh. uh, and it is the English horn, and sometimes referred to as, which is the translation of that. Okay. And I wasn't basically, sure what it was. a cor anglais is basically a bass oboe. So okay. it, when you uh, are trained as an oboist, uh, if you look, if you look at an orchestra, there will be two oboes, first oboe, second oboe, and a third oboe who plays cor anglais. And in fact, some of the, and it's a much deeper, more beautifully rich sound than the oboe. The oboe can be a bit kind of thin and incisive. Some of the most famous orchestral solos are piece, a very famous piece by John Sibelius called the Swan of Tuonola, mm. is a massive cor anglais solo. Okay. Uh, uh, Dvorak's New World Symphony, massive cor anglais solo. Okay. Um, and so but I is that of... you playing it, or did you hire uh, someone else to come in and do it? No, no, that, that's me playing it. <laughs> yeah, good one, Iva. Yes, <laughs> that is great. I was hoping you would say that. Yeah, it's, a, it's beautiful. Um, okay, I know you were trying to hurry. I'll burn through some of these. Heartbreak Kid is an odd song only because it, the first half sounds as if you're t singing about cowboys and a shootout and tells a tale and whatnot. And then the second half seems to be a more modern story. Is that, do I have this right? You do have it completely right. And so it started life as uh, me trying to write a Bob Dylan song, uh, you know, three, you know, on an acoustic guitar. In fact, there is a recording when I first wrote, it was just me and acoustic guitar. And I think one Tom Tom um, okay. uh, version of it. But of course it turned into an ice house extravaganza. I started adding on, you know, that keyboard and this keyboard. And so what I wanted to do was just uh, once again, uh, kind of eccentric experiment was to start the story in the wild west about a gunman who was a stud basically. I don't know whether you have in America the same same meaning for that word. Uh, and he breaks this young woman's heart. And then the second half is basically in a bar in New York where there's a television set on with the evening news going. And it's telling the story of obviously an event that's happened, which was the demise of the heartbreak kid because what he didn't factor in was there's <laughs> hell hath no fury, as it were. And, um, and you know, Sunset shot that gunman down and it's being read by a newsreader in New York modern day, modern time. So it was just that exercise of writing the story across 
two centuries, I guess. Got it. That makes sense. <laughs> it's a really clever trick. Um, so, okay, so we turn the album over. It's uh, side two, and it's The Kingdom. And Man of Colors, Kingdom, and Sunrise are my three favorite songs on the album, depending on my mood. Well, I like one more than the other. This song, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, maybe it has something to do with the conversation with Bowie that you were just talking about. It reminds me a lot of a song he had at the time called This Is Not America that he did with Pat Metheny for the Falcon and the Snowman soundtrack. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Uh, yes, I do know the song. Wait, yeah, no, so, yeah, yeah. As soon as the bass kicks in, it starts off sort of the kingdom anyway. When that bass line kicks in, it's really quite bouncy and rubbery. That's exactly the song that it makes me think of. I'm not saying that anything was plagiarized or whatever, but it reminds me of a similar vibe, like you were saying about Iggy Pop a minute ago. I think um, when I got the Fairlight originally, it came with a very small sample library. Um, oh. And the, the idea was that you were to create your own samples. But one of the successful samples, so we're going back to 1982 here, uh, was a sample of a bass guitar and I use that all over the place. So it's the bass on No Promises and I think it's the bass on uh, The Kingdom. Got so it. it's a it's a machine generated bass part, I think. Okay. And that's what it may have in common. Okay. Uh, it's kind that's of deceptive. Uh, yeah. our, bass, our current bass player was talking about No Promises and he said, it's part machine and it's part Fleetwood Mac. Oh, ooh, interesting. Okay. And and the reason he's saying that is because there's that very simple bong, 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 yes. bong, 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 yes. bong, which is rumors all over, you know what I mean? Yes, <laughs> yes, it is. Good point. When we, I have a similar question about drumming when we get to anybody's war about yeah. uh, uh, authentic instrumentation versus machine instrumentation but one thing i want to mention the opening stanza of the kingdom reads one of those days that just comes and goes it's not so special and i'm wondering i'm imagining iva davies sitting on his bed strumming a, a guitar not feeling anything and he decides i'm just going to write what's happening today and then after he gets that first line down he thinks i like that he decides to build a story about someone else a woman uh, looking for the kingdom. I'm going to ask you what the kingdom is in a second. And so he takes his mood that he's feeling right that very second and uses the, the catapult to tell the story about a woman, someone else in the second, in the second person, whatever, not first person. D does that make sense at all? <clears throat> Look, I can. Uh, so there was a young woman behind a lot of these songs. Okay. Uh, and uh, my relationship with her was, uh, complicated but um at one point i was actually engaged to her and um she's very independent and she's exactly the sort of woman that would young woman that would take herself into town to watch a movie on her own and um you know not care that she didn't have a boyfriend with her or you know another girlfriend or whatever just completely self-contained yeah and and to me the kingdom is a is a kind of ironic Thing because this is a domain that is described as the domain of a man. And yet, in this story, the star is a young woman because mm. she doesn't care. You know, I can do Boy. whatever. So that's the kind of key to it. 
that makes sense because that not caring and I can do whatever are often, especially back then, would have been uh, attributed more attributable to male um, attributes. I guess is the right yeah. word. And you're talking about in the case of a woman. Okay, I got it. That makes sense. She's not a she, she's not a movie star. She's not a beauty yep. queen. She doesn't care. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I love that song. Um, okay. The next one, my obsession, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but the last three songs were stories. You telling stories basically about other people. And then by my obsession, you go back to the first person. And um, there's a there's a very rollicking piano happening in the background. You talk about the ghost of you. I'm curious who the ghost is that you're, or who the you is. This song sounds a little bit like a cousin to crazy, has similar parts, but a different song. Tell me about it. The same young woman is behind all of these songs. Ah, oh, got it. Okay. Okay. Uh, including Man of Colors. Um, oh, okay. So if you, if, you, if you go and have a look at the music video to Man of Colors, uh, it it shows you the story. And in actual fact, uh, the, fella, the fella that's playing the old man is in fact my father. Um, Your real father is the guy? Oh, I got to go watch it, this. Okay. It, he, he's the old artist in the, in the music video. Okay. And he's painting... Uh, a portrait and in my mind he's been painting this same young woman's face he's been getting older and older and older and older but he's painting her as a young woman if you look at the painting that's actually the prop my mother made that painting my mother painted that painting and the young woman and the young woman who is the representative that uh, was my girlfriend at the time and the painting is of her and she's in the music video as well and she was a ballerina uh, okay. And we are we are not talking about the same young woman who was in all my songs. We are talking about who was my current girlfriend at the time of Man of Colors. Oh. So these I've written albums of songs to this first love of mine. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So when you write the songs, you're with one girl. But when you're when the album comes, when you're recording the songs, you're with someone else. Do I have that right? I was writing about the relationship I used to have. That's the better way of saying it. Yes, better way of saying it. Okay. Ooh, fascinating. Okay. Now we're talking about Girl in the Moon. Uh, it starts out with this very dark, almost like scary intro. But the rest of the song is not like that at all. And I'm wondering why you felt like that was the right thing for this particular song. Uh, it's more about the musical idea. I think uh, I might have stolen the kind of vibe of it from XTC. Believe it oh, or not, that, that kind of spiky—that's yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that's kind of spiky guitar thing, you know. Uh -huh. um, but the essence of the song or the exercise was to try and write something as mad as uh, "I'm the Walrus," you know, that kind of mad really? lyric. You know, yeah, that nonsense lyric thing. Yeah. Which it wasn't until I sat down and tried to actually do that that I realized how incredibly difficult that is. You know, you, it's really hard to write complete nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite lines of yours, lyrics of any songs, is in this. And he says, and you say, everywhere a bad case of nowhere news. And I think, who would ever think to say that? Yes, I, and yet, I know exactly what you're talking about. I love that line. And the rest of the song sounds like a guy, I imagine like a, a tiger in a cage. He's got to get out. He's got to get some fresh air. He's feeling pent up. I've been in the same room for too long. I got to get out. That's sort of what, it, but then you start, but then it's about a girl on the moon. So I'm guessing the girl on the moon is the girl we've been talking about and you having pent up feelings for her or pent up thoughts or needs. 
Well, as I say, I was trying to write nonsense. Um, yeah, true, true. Maybe it's not and, so biographical. And it's it's probably not biographical. And I think it was it was just to be directly contrary to the whole concept of the man in the moon. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. why does it have okay. to be a man? Good point. <laughs> Good point. I get it. Okay. Um, all right. We're, we have two left. Anybody's war. Um, there's a big drum info, intro. And what I was mentioning earlier about real uh, instruments versus synth instruments, I ima I'm imagining this being played on like one of those hexagonal drum kits. Maybe I'm wrong, but we had Richard James Burgess on here last year and he's a prominent producer who invented those drums and i wondered if they were everywhere around that time and i wondered if that's what was being used or someone playing real drums on top of synth drums i wasn't sure no that's our that's our drummer paul wheeler and uh, playing okay. on real drums um, okay and that was an idea uh of david lords was to you know i the original demo doesn't have any drum introduction on it but I guess David Lloyd just said to Paul, um, you know, just go, just go for your life. Uh, we, yeah. we, you know, knock yourself out, which he, you know, did a fantastic job. Um, and uh, you know, once again, leads into that same tempo of yeah. uh, of uh, real wild child. It does. Boy, who knew? That is fascinating. Yeah, that song is really driven by drums. Are you speaking? Is the war? I mean, is it just kind of general '80s Cold War paranoia? Are you feeling that over there? No, this is uh, directly, so uh, where where my house was was quite close to the inner city, but across the road from it, there was some public housing. And um, I used to go, my bedroom's upstairs, it kind of, you, didn't, you know what a terrace house is, like the English concept yeah. of terrace, a two-story two terrace house. Mm -hmm. And my bedroom was at the front, so I'd had a little kind of wrought iron uh, balcony rail, and I would kind of hide there, and that's where the uh, picture of the old man being able to look out over the street um, sure. from, from Man of Colors was. Because uh, the neat thing was, I could kind of hide in the corner there, and people wouldn't know I was there, so they'd be coming back from the shops and walking down the street. And, you know, on occasion, there'd be somebody, and they'd be, you know, they'd be half drunk and having a great time with a girlfriend, and then some, another couple would be kind of having a full-on domestic quarrel in the not even know that anybody was overhearing them yeah. and then unfortunately from the public housing across the road quite often at night there were people who were screaming at each other couples you know and probably probably if the truth be known some sort of domestic violence situations mm. this is a very early song about domestic violence mm. wow interesting <laughs> nobody's singing well i mean there are a couple of pop songs about that kind of thing back then but not a lot for whatever unknown reason, I went on to write this, uh, another song, which is on Code Blue, which followed this uh, song called Jericho Bay. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, there's stuff in my mother's past that she never spoke about, but I suspect that the, that might have been a situation that she she walked away from with her first husband, uh, not, my, not, not my father. So uh, she never talked about it, but... Uh, I guess that was trigger enough for me to kind of go back and revisit it with Jericho Bay. Interesting. Um, okay. Uh, but it was immediately happening across the street from me uh, Got it. when I wrote, when I wrote Anybody's Wall. Okay. All right. Last song is Sunrise. I think it's a beautiful, epic closer. And one of the hallmarks of this song is your last vocal. I'm imagining you having to work so hard. You can feel the strain and the effort you're putting into hitting these notes 
over the course of this song and it is beautiful and by the end you can't give any more you've strained so much and what i was wondering is if this was a composite of many vocal takes or did you do the whole thing start to finish in one take and that's what we hear well, it wasn't too many more than one take. I dare say okay. there were there were there was a bit of compiling uh, okay. done. Once again, uh, it's testament to David Lord's imagination that he put in he put in bars, uh, the breakdown in the middle, and right at the beginning, I think the odd three four bar, even the odd five four bar, that kind of um, misleads you. You know, you, you you don't quite know where you are, um, mm -hmm. and and he, I think enjoyed the kind of cinematic quality of that song. Perfect word, cinematic, yes. Yeah. Now, you start off talking about fishermen, and then, but there's also temple grounds. Are you relaying the story of a historic event, or is this a story you've made up in your mind? So you, you really, you're really not gonna kind of believe that the, the, uh, the germ that started this oh, song. Oh, okay. <laughs> was was a, a nightly news report where it was noted that the Japanese economy was the world's strongest economy. And, and that was whatever the year that was, you know, 1986 or 87. And it kind of, when I thought about it, I kind of blew my mind because I went, hang on, are you telling me that a country that was absolutely brought to its knees in every possible sense, at the end of World War II, was occupied by an American army, was forbidden to arm itself. You know, so many constraints, you know, you're sort of hamstrung in so many ways. And in the space of that short time, relatively short time, 40 something years or 50 years, that economy is the strongest economy in the world. That's wild. And I thought, yeah, it is wild. Yeah. And how, how can I paint this picture? Mm -hmm. um, so what you're seeing in the first verse <coughs> is a bunch of fishermen off the coast and they're hearing Enola Gay coming, coming over. Wondered. And then you've got the 17 seconds it takes for Mm -hmm. I don't know which one it was, fat man or little boy or whatever, mm -hmm. to fall. And in, in fact, in Hiroshima, there, there are silhouettes of human beings uh, burnt onto temple walls from the explosion, which is mind boggling, you know. And so I just created a little verse about that moment just before that explosion. And then I'm going on to then basically suggesting the chorus, based on the Japanese flag, this oh. country, this country has just risen out of the ashes like a phoenix, you know, yeah. Yeah. Like, a brand, like a brand new sunrise, you know. That makes sense. So the sunrise you're thinking of and singing about should, should make us think of the flag, of the big red circle. Uh, well, the red circle has shown with the, with the uh, what do you call the radiant beams, uh, but it's, yeah. it's about it's about the human spirit. It's about true, resilience. True. That's that's what it's about. Yes. It's about wow. the re resilience of a nation. I mean, when I heard that news report, I just went, "That is astonishing." This this yes. nation has rebuilt itself after that to a point where it's got the strongest economy in the world. That is incredible. That's crazy, and that's um, 
in, such unique fodder for a rock song. You know, that's why that's why I told you you wouldn't believe. <laughs> yes, I get it. Where it from. I get it now. Wow. Well, that brings us to the end of Man of Colors. I mean, it was your American breakthrough, and uh, it did really well. Did it go platinum? Uh, I think it's gold in America. Yeah. Okay. In, okay. in a in a America in Australia, they they stopped counting after eleven times platinum. Nice. There you go. <laughs> well, good. That's what uh, broke you through. That's the time I saw. I got to see you in concert. The only time, and um, it was a hallmark album of my upbringing and of the '80s. And I just, I'm so grateful you told me the stories about it. Thank you, Ivan. I, this was so much more than I thought it would be. Fascinating stuff. I had no idea. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Ivan. All right, there you have it. Wasn't that interesting? The thing I liked most, probably, about this particular deep dive is that each song pretty much had like a golden nugget of trivia. Each one had at least one really interesting, you know, story or point of interest to it um, that you might not have known otherwise. So it was really a pleasure to get to hear from Iva about this particular album. I thought there was a lot of fun details in there. Anyway, hope everyone enjoyed that. Uh, check us out. We'll get, we're going to be back on Tuesday, obviously, with another episode, regular episode. And we have at least two book clubs in the can. More coming. And uh, some panels being worked on. The retro being worked on. And uh, some other deep dives being worked on. So there's a ton coming. All right? Thanks, folks. We love you. <laughs>